have the great privilege of working with Dr. Govet. He's my boss, but in many ways, he's not my boss. It's like working for a colleague, you know, very affirming person, very encouraging. He leads by example, a man of the utmost integrity. We're certainly privileged to have him to minister to us this morning. After he will have preached to us this morning, he will want to meet with our board briefly. Uh, we're going to meet in room one. Uh, just for a few minutes as he shares uh, some things with us and thanks you for your service. So we invite you now, sir, to come forward and minister to us from God's word. Blessings on you. Thank you, doctor. It is good to be almost doctor. He's on the home stretch. I tell you, I'm checking in this morning. I can't wait to April. At graduation is going to be a great party. Uh, good work. Well done. Uh, thank you so much for being here. And uh, it was great to hear Aaron and Laura. Thanks for your work in Poland for your ministry outreach there and for the way you guys support Courtney and the work around the world. And I'm excited about your mission field right here in the neighborhood. You're going to host people, a lot of bikers coming through. I don't know what your scripture verse is going to be for them, run and not grow weary, walk and not faint, or just Jesus loves you and so do we, but uh, what a word of encouragement you'll be to them. So thank you for making those kind of connections and for the many ways in which you serve. I had to smile this morning. Uh, earlier, uh, Dr., soon to be Dr., uh, Griffin and I had corresponded about uh, a passage of scripture, and I directed him to Acts chapter 13, and I had some things I was going to share, and then as I got closer and closer to today's date, I thought, I think I preached from Acts chapter 13 last year. Did anybody have that in your notes? Who, who remembered? Three of us? Some Sundays I don't remember what I preached the previous week, so that's all right. But I thought, wait a second. So uh, we are going to look at Acts chapter 13, but we'll spend our time today in Isaiah 6. So if you want to look ahead, you can look to Isaiah 6. But as I'm doing that, it reminded me, and I shared this story with Pastor. Uh, I was raised in a preacher's home. My dad uh, served the Lord faithfully 60 years, just passed away last September. And I remember this experience. Uh, we went away. Of course, Dad was preaching on Sunday, and then we were going to the, the district camp meeting in those days, and we were going to be there all week long. So he had prepared messages and got everything all set up for when he got back that next Sunday. So we got in late Saturday night. Next morning, he got up and preached with fervency, with power, with passion, the very same message he preached the earlier Sunday. <laughs> and when he picked up his notes that morning, it had the notes from the previous week in his Bible. And uh, the sad thing was, he said it was about halfway through before he realized it, and all the way through, some people still didn't realize it, he said. <laughs> so, this morning, it's a joy to share from you, uh, with you from Acts chapter 13. Uh, certainly, the passage there speaks about the church worshiping and praying. And uh, the verses are on the screen. I'm just going to refer to them from this standpoint. Over these last few years, God has done miraculous things at Brown's Chapel Church. Miraculous things. And I believe, as I believe your pastor does, that so much of that directs itself back to the prayer focus. Many of our churches across the district are starting this very day a 21 days of prayer emphasis. And if you want to jump in and join them, you can find the resources online, 21 days of prayer. Church of the Highlands down in Birmingham, Alabama is actually hosting that. And then several of our churches do their own material. Others jump in and just watch the video. You can find it through the day at their site. There's a wonderful little app called Pray First. It's a free app that has a guided prayer for 21 days of focus as we're moving into the harvest season, moving into the school year. Uh, prayer makes a difference. I, I was thinking, and I think I've got the quote here if I, I say it right. Hudson Taylor, one of my missionary heroes, said, uh, when we work, we work. 
when we work, you're like, duh. <laughs> when we work, we work. And then he said, but when we pray, God works. When we pray, God works. And so I love this passage in Acts chapter 13. I've been reminding churches about it because it says it was out of prayer, out of worship, out of that encounter with God that you see this prompting, this nudging. I'm going to call it a Holy Spirit nudge to step out to go. And this passage uh, speaks to us about going, in their case, a very specific direction. They were taking the gospel to the Gentiles. But if you want to have an earlier picture of that, I invite you to join me in Isaiah chapter 6. Can you do that? Let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. This beautiful passage may be familiar to you. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, and this was a king who had done some good things, and Isaiah was like, there's hope here. But every time a king would die, there's an uncertainty, like what's going to happen next? It's kind of like our elections, like, okay, what's going to happen now? And, and there's this apprehension, and you can see that Isaiah takes time. He's here, it says, in the temple. It references a couple of different times that Isaiah finds himself in the temple. And in that place, it says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here I am. Send me. And he said, go. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word that speaks to our hearts through time. And God, we thank you that even this morning you are speaking. And we pray that our lips would be touched. We pray that our ears would be opened. And Lord, could we hear the nudging of your Holy Spirit for our next step. May we say, here am I, Lord, send me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Some of you may know this story already. Bill was a millionaire by the time he graduated from high school. That's not bad. That's a good way to kind of start on life. That's, that's certainly privilege. At the age of 16, in fact, his family thought, you know, he ought to see the world. So they sent him, after he graduated from Chicago High School, they sent him on a round-the-trip world at 16. He traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe. And as he traveled, he felt this growing burden for the hurting people of the world that he saw, that he encountered. In fact, he wrote home, even as a teenager, he wrote home about a, a growing nudge, a, a, a desire, he said, to become a missionary. Well, his parents had other plans for him, which included Yale. So as a, a millionaire freshman at Yale, he goes, he's studying, but while he's there, he has this nudging, this prompting of the Spirit. And his roommate said it was well on in that first term when Bill and I began to pray together in the morning before breakfast. He said, I can't say positively whose suggestion it was, 
but I feel sure it must have originated with Bill. We've been meeting for only a short time when a third student joined us and soon after a fourth, and the time was spent in prayer with a brief reading of Scripture. Bill's handling of the Scripture was helpful. He would read to us from the Bible, show us something God had promised, and then proceed to claim that promise with assurance. This is a college freshman named Bill. Bill's small morning prayer group gave birth eventually to a movement that swept across that campus. At that time, there were about 1,300 students enrolled at Yale. By the end of his senior year, up to 1,000 of the 1,300 students were meeting for prayer. After graduation, Bill moved to Princeton to continue his graduate work. While he was there, he continued to throw himself into this preparation phase of becoming a missionary. One friend expressed disbelief and said, Bill is throwing himself away. He's throwing himself away as a missionary. But in response, Bill wrote two words in the back of his Bible. No reserve. No reserve. You see, the family said, if you're going to do this, you need to step away from your responsibilities in the corporation. Some of you may have heard of this corporation, Borden Dairies. But then they used to have a cow, Daisy. Is that the right? Was that a Daisy? Yeah, you remember now. You're over 40 if you're remembering this, right? Okay. This is Billy Borden. And his call, as he prayed about it, became narrowed to the Muslim people in China, the Kansu tribe. Once he fixed his eyes on that goal, he never wavered. He challenged his classmates to consider missionary service, and he refused to join a fraternity, but he presided over a huge student missionary conference that was held and served as president of the Honor Society. When he graduated... He turned down high-paying job offers, including the family business. And then in his Bible, he wrote two more words, no retreat. What were the first ones? No reserves, not holding anything back. Second word, no retreat. Bill Borden, after finishing seminary in New Jersey, went on and began his travels and what he would hope to eventually take him to China. But because he was hoping to work with Muslims there, he stopped first in Egypt to study Arabic. While he was there, Bill Borden contracted spinal meningitis. Within a month, the 25-year-old missionary was dead. When the news of Bill Borden's death was cabled back to the U.S., the story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. A wave of sorrow, it said, was, went round the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself, in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice, wrote Mary Taylor in her introduction. It was discovered later that just prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves, no retreats, he had written the words, no regrets. No regrets. Can you write those words in your Bible? No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Isaiah had to make those same kind of choices. Uh, he had some position, he had some privilege, there were things he easily could have done, but in this moment, this encounter with God, in this experience of worship, he hears this calling, I want you to go.
You hear that again in Acts chapter 13. You hear it literally throughout Scripture. Even Adam and Eve heard the call. They said, manage the garden, and then I want you to fill the earth. You can't fill the earth just standing in one spot, right? You've got to move. You've got to go. And God has always been inviting his people to join him in this adventure of going. I shared with you, and perhaps last year, talked about the fact that this is our 180th anniversary of the Wesleyan Methodist movement in the state of Indiana. A young man by the name of Daniel Worth was so concerned about slavery, about human trafficking, he said somebody needs to do something about it. He became the first president of the Indiana Anti-Slavery Association. But he also planted a church. And that church was Fountain City Wesleyan Methodist Church, today known as Life Spring with campuses both there just south of Fountain City and a campus in downtown Richmond. About a thousand people will worship there in that church 180 years ago. He heard a call, he sensed a nudge, and he stepped out. And soon places like Brown's Chapel and over in Westfield and up in Auto, where I just was last week, that church is 180 years old. People sensed the nudge, they heard the prompting, they felt the calling, and they stepped out and they obeyed God to make a difference in their generation. And I believe God just continues to do that today. We saw it this year. Uh, some of you may have been at conference or maybe read the updates afterwards. Uh, this year we had a record number of people. It was 156 people in the last 12 months who said, I sense God calling me. That's over 700 people since our district was formed through merger in 2016. Over 700 people have said, I hear the calling of God to go into missions or to go into ministry. God is asking me to do something specific. And this last year, 156. Our goal was 100. So I said, God, just blow us away. Just do your thing. 156 people who answered that call in just this last year. And let me just tell you, I know there's uncertainty in the economics. There's certainly uncertainty in, in politics. There's uncertainty even it feels like in the scientific realm. Like are there two genders or 29? I mean, there's all kinds of uncertainty in this world, right? But I got to tell you, here's one thing I'm certain about. God is still on the throne. He's high and lifted up. And it's from that place of confidence in a God who never changes that we can step out in faith and take risks and be involved in his mission. Only when Isaiah could see God as he was, see his transcendence, his power, as we sang about this morning, to see that, con that constant, that rock of assurance, it was in that he could step out and make a difference. And I'm grateful for the fact that God still invites people to do just that. Uh, I, 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 when I think about going and, and hearing the calling, and some of you may have had this experience, sometimes God asks you to go to a place that's unknown. It was Abraham. It was Abraham that was uh, just kind of minding his own business when God says, I want you to go someplace you've never been before. Uh, and some of you have had that experience. You're like, I I've never been here. Maybe Poland was that experience for Lauren Aaron. Like, we've never been there, but let's take a, take a leap. Uh, for, a for Abraham, it was clearly that. He didn't know, and he didn't even know the way to get there. God simply invited him to follow on a journey that was to an unknown destination with an unknown path. I'm at an age now where Sherry and I need to agree. I'll try to remember where we're going, and she'll try to remember how to get there. That's where we are now, right? 
But bless their hearts, Abraham and Sarah didn't know where they were going and didn't know how to get there. But they trusted God, and so he moves out. And because of that obedience, because of his willingness to go to a place unknown, today we celebrate Abraham as the father of faith. The father of faith. I, I remember an experience like that in our lives. Uh, Sherry and I were serving in Michigan. I'd been the district superintendent there for five years Actually, a couple years before that, I'd been invited to go on a team to a country known as Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is conveniently located between Iran and Russia. That's the neighborhood. <laughs> so I went with the Global Partners, and World Hope had to work there, and I was invited to go to, to see the, what they were doing, to understand more about the mission there. And while we were there, it was not the primary focus of the trip, but while we were there, on the Sunday morning, we worshipped in the basement of an apartment complex in little white plastic, molded plastic chairs. You sat in those things at lawn parties, maybe? Here we sat in this basement, and I looked around the room. There were not as many people as there are here today, but they were from almost as many countries as there were people. The only things they had in common was they understood English at varying levels, and they loved Jesus. And I'd never been in a room like that before, and something just stirred in my heart. I was like, this is a little glimpse of heaven. And I had this impression, maybe nudge. And I came home, I told Sherry, if that little group of people ever needed a pastor, I think I'd have to go to try to help them. Now, please understand, we were living in our home of our dreams, job of my dreams, the kids are doing great in school, all the things that you kind of, the American dream, you put it in a frame, like there it is. Like it felt like that was our reality, and then there's this. A Muslim country with 40 or 50 people in plastic chairs in the basement. <laughs> and yet I just had this little nudge, and they weren't looking for a pastor, so Sherry was relieved. <laughs> She's like, great. That's, well, I'm glad you had that little idea, but that's no problem. We'll just move on. Except for this, two years later, I got a phone call from a man named Mick Veach. Some of you may know Mick. He's from Indiana, now serves at Kentwood Community Church. He was working with World Hope there, and he said, Mark, you remember that little group of people that met in the basement? Well, they've continued to grow, and they think maybe if they had a full-time pastor, maybe they could go from just kind of this unorganized group hanging out to maybe they could kind of get established as a church and, and have a bigger impact here in the city of Baku. And my heart both leapt and sank at the same time. Is that possible? Can your heart leap and sink at the same time? It's like, whoa! And, and I said, well, well Mick, I'll, I'll need to talk to Sherry, and we'll need to pray, and I'll get back to you. And so I talked to Sherry. You know, that little nudge I'd felt two years before, she'd actually gone to her prayer group and said, the weirdest thing happened when Mark was in Azerbaijan. <laughs> she said, you need to pray. I think she was praying, pray that he'll calm down. Pray that he'll get over it. Like, this will pass, right? Wives, you've had to pray that prayer that this will pass. Man, as we thought about it, it's like, is this what God's asking us to do? And I just, I began to try to do this. You know the pros and cons list you do? Some of you have been guilty of that. Well, I was. Like, pros, cons, the list of pros was short and the list of cons was really long and I just thought, I can't do, I've got kids they're 14, 12, 10 and 8 years old, three boys and a blessing three boys some of you will get that later, three boys and a blessing and, and it's like how do you do this, how do you pick up and move your family to they can't even pay you full time they want you full time, they can't pay you full time and you've still got a house payment and you've got this responsibility and that and finally I got to confess, I called them, and my kids were around, because we've been talking about this and praying about it as a family. I called them, 
And I said, I just don't think I can do that, but I appreciate your offer. And I hung up the phone, and my 10-year-old son began to cry. And he said, Dad, Dad, you've got to call him back. I said, what, Joel? You've got to call him back. We're not wimps, are we? I thought, well, yes, actually, I am. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty wimpy right about now. He's like, Dad, you've got to call him back. I said, well, let's pray through the night, and then I'll make a decision more. And we prayed, and I couldn't shake the fact that God had called, and my list of pros and cons was irrelevant. It was irrelevant. Had God spoken or not? And God has spoken, and we called back and asked if they'd forgive me for my, my hasty response the day before. And they were very gracious, and God opened that door. And we went and spent a school year with them and saw do some crazy things. Uh, we went, and by the time we got there, there were about 100 people. They were gathering with anticipation, and we were celebrating in an elementary school. We had guards because it's a Muslim country, and while this group was allowed to meet, they were afraid of what might happen to us more than what we would do, so they had guards posted uh, that were there in the facility. That was a, a, a crazy experience. We got to start their small group ministry, did outreach events, some of the stuff you've done here. Uh, by Christmas, we had our first Christmas cantata. Rana, we did a cantata. Remember those? Remember those? We did a cantata way back in the day. We did this Christmas musical, for those of you who don't know what a cantata is. Musical. We had 300 and some people show up at the, at the British Petroleum uh, School thing we did there. And more exciting than that, we began to see people take steps of faith probably the most special moment for me personally was on Easter Sunday when I had the privilege of baptizing Kashna. Kashna had come to the city of Baku, but the story actually predates that because her husband had come from India working the oil services business there in the Caspian Sea in that area and, and the exploration work was going on. And, and he had come to know Christ through his business partner, his employer really, who offered a Bible study after, after work one day a week. You could stay. It wasn't mandatory, but if you'd like to stay, the business owner offered this Bible study, and he would read a passage and share his insights, and they would pray together. And so Patrick had begun coming to this Bible study, even though he was Hindu, gave his life to Christ, came to faith. And then he said to us, please, would you pray with me that my wife, who's still in India with our kids, that she could come here and experience what I'm experiencing and be part of this journey. And so we began to pray with Patrick, and just before Christmas, she was able to come with these kids, and so they were part of that Christmas experience, and they became part of the, she became part of the women's ministry, and the kids were in the children's church, and their family was being impacted by the gospel. And before Easter that year, Kashna came to me and said, Pastor Mark, would you baptize me? I want to be a follower of Jesus. She prayed to receive Christ, and I had the privilege. We didn't have a fancy baptistry. We put literally a kiddie pool on the platform on the stage there, and I had the privilege of pouring water over her head. I've got a picture still on my phone of her kneeling and expressing publicly her faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you say, that's just one person. And I thought often, what if that was the only one? Would it still have been worth it? Pretty sure the answer to that is yes. And here's the end of the story, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would have said. About a year later, I got the email that said Patrick had died of a heart attack. Her husband. And I wondered, I tried to replay, like, what if we hadn't gone? What if Patrick hadn't gotten saved? What if she hadn't come? What if we hadn't the privilege of intersecting her life with the gospel? Because today she still follows Jesus. Her kids are grown. They have kids. They're following Jesus. I get 
email. I, you know, uh, Facebook is not the greatest thing in the world, I'm sure, but every once in a while she'll post a message to me, and I'm like, thank God for Facebook. It's like, I will hear from her, and I think, thank you, Lord, that for that season of our lives, we took a step into the unknown and what God can do in those spaces. So much of our life is uncertain, and I know the time is coming quickly to an end. I just want to encourage you, don't be don't have to write regrets in your Bible. Don't have to say, I wish I might have. I wish I could. I'll never be thankful. I'll never be able to express this side of eternity, how thankful I am for a guy named Bob Powers. Bob was a railroad worker. Not a preacher, not a missionary, but Bob was a railroad worker. His church did something like you did. They said, we're going to have a back-to-church Sunday. We're going to have this special event, and we want everybody pray about the people in your neighborhood or your friends or family members who don't know Jesus and take the risk, spend the relational capital to actually invite them to come on that special day and break through that uncertainty, that barrier. So Bob prayed about it, and he thought about the family across the street. He'd watched the way they lived. He interacted with them, and he realized they were not following Jesus. It's pretty obvious. So he decided that's the family he was going to invite. He walked across the street, knocked on the door, and the family was not warm to his invitation. The father and mother said, nope, and the oldest son and the youngest son said, nope, but the middle son said yes. And he went with Bob Powers to that church. He heard the gospel. Within a few days, he'd given his life to Christ, became part of the youth group in the Wesleyan Church who loved him, supported, encouraged him. In that context, he sensed the nudging to become pastor. He went off to Baba College, met this young lady. They got married, and a year later, I was born to that family. And I just think, what would have happened if a railroad worker hadn't walked across the street, hadn't taken the risk to knock on a door, hadn't taken the risk to invite a family to church? And here's the reality. You don't have to go to Azerbaijan. You don't have to go to Poland. Maybe the unknown in which God is calling you is literally going to be across the office suite to that coworker, across, across the classroom, or literally across the street to say, hey, I'm part of an amazing church where God is on the move. God's doing incredible things. He's answering prayers, and I would love to have you come as my guest for Back to Church Sunday. You never know what God can do. I think about Bob, and then I think about my life, my brother who's serving as a missionary in Manhattan, my sister and her husband who pastor a church in Burnips, Michigan, outside of Grand Rapids, runs about 600 people. I have a sister who's a Christian school teacher down in Georgia. Then my family, I have two sons who are ordained ministers, both serving Jesus. I have a son who's a worship leader. I have a daughter who works for a Christian ministry, and her husband works for Bethany Christian Services. And I think about the generational impact of one person like you not Dr. Griffin, one person like you who said there's somebody in my circle of influence who needs Jesus. And maybe the first step would be to invite them to a special day at Brown's Chapel Church. Well, I want to be able to write in my Bible no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. And I want you to be able to say the same. So could you stand with me? And I just want to pray with us this morning. Lord, I thank you for your, the way you work across our district family. I could tell story after story about the way that lives are being changed and churches are being planted and missionaries are being sent. But, Lord, I thank you for this church, this mission field, this community, these leaders, these dear faithful people who love you 
and who are called just as surely as Isaiah was called. He heard your voice in worship, and he said, Here am I, Lord. Send me. And you said, Go, go. Holy Spirit, would you nudge us even now with the name, the face of the person that we could have that kind of eternal impact on? May we pray for them faithfully day by day. May we act in ways that are kind and loving. May we serve them with your grace and then, Lord, may we take the risks to share our story of how you've changed our lives and invite them to this beautiful church family called Brown's Chapel. God, we believe this will be a year of kingdom harvest at Brown's Chapel Church. And we pray and ask it in Jesus' name.